0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Where's This Going? Before we get started today, I want to give a big shout-out to my sponsor, U.S. Wellness Meats. At U.S. Wellness Meats, they supply nutrient-dense, all-natural foods to professional football and baseball teams, colleges, individual athletes at the highest levels of every single major sport, health professionals, respected gourmet chefs, fine dining establishments, and families all over the country in every state, Canada, and Puerto Rico who are looking for the best quality food on this planet. They ship anywhere in the country for only $9.50 for shipping and handling, and most orders are delivered within 24 to 48 hours of leaving their facilities. They have grass-fed and pasture-raised meats that are loaded with good nutrition like conjugated linoleic acid, also known as CLA, omega-3 amino acids, and a host of vitamins and minerals. CLA is a cancer fighter, muscle builder, and supports immune functions among many, many other health benefits. Use promo code PODCAST, that's P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for 15% off your next order today. Go check it out. And my next guest, he was a former Middle East correspondent for the Associated Press for over five and a half years. He then moved back to Brooklyn And him and his business partner, Tom Potter, created the Brooklyn Brewery. Please welcome the founder and chairman of the Brooklyn Brewery, Steve Hindi. Live here with Steve Hindi. Thank you so much for coming on. Good to be here, Felix. So as I mentioned before, I like to start off with a little tidbit or a story if you've had a chance to think of one of something that the world does not know about you yet.
1: Well, most people don't know that uh, when I was in high school, I was a good golfer like a junior golfer. Uh, and uh, that was a real passion of mine. You know, my dad played pro baseball. And uh, he he drove me to play baseball. And uh, he pushed too hard. I hated baseball. I couldn't wait to get out of uh, Little League. And I kind of discovered golf on my own, and it became my thing. So... As a high school golfer, I won tournaments in upstate New York and uh, some junior tournaments. And then actually, when I went to Cornell, uh, my goal was to learn to design golf courses because the the most famous golf course architect, Robert Trent Jones, went to Cornell. So that was my aspiration when I started uh, at Cornell in, in 1967 um, and I played on the golf team uh, but at the end of freshman year I had a two handicap I played number one or number two on the golf team but my grade point average was 1.9 wow. and uh, you know below two you're pretty much out of Cornell so <laughs> I had to make a, a a choice and I quit golf entirely and kind of cut it out of my life and uh, uh, ended up majoring in English and becoming a journalist and uh, uh, I didn't take up golf again till almost 17 18 years later when I started Brooklyn brewery
0: Wow what <laughs> how, how did how did you come about um, with the 1.9 GPA were you were you just were you partying were you not
1: focused you know I was playing a lot of golf <laughs> I mean you know golf uh, it demands a lot of uh, practice and a lot of attention if you're going to play at a high level. And, uh, yeah, I was doing a little partying too, but um, uh, it was really spending so much time on, on the golf course. Uh, and, you know, interestingly, the two, one, two of the most prominent golf architects today, uh, Gil Hance and uh, I'm spacing on the other guy, uh, they are are graduates of Cornell. So that is definitely um if I had stuck with that, I would have been in a, a great uh, position.
0: Did you ever get to design any golf courses at all? No.
1: No. Never. No.
0: So let's get into it a little bit with um, of course, Brooklyn Brewery and everything. It's now been what, over thirty years?
1: Yep. Thirty um, thirty one years. Did you ever imagine that it would be what it is today? Uh well. You know, the original plan uh, actually was to be a big part of the Brooklyn market only. To be, I think the original business plan aspired to be 3% of the Brooklyn market. The Brooklyn market being a a very big beer market. Um, But, um, you know... Things have happened and we've become an international brand. So, actually, this year, 60% of our sales will be export, will be around the world. Uh, We do sell a lot of beer here in New York, but um, I never imagined we would, you know, that I'd be going to Stockholm or Tokyo or or Paris and and seeing people uh, drinking my beer.
0: what what's the feeling like now when you when you do go to those places and you see people drinking the beer? Is it?
1: Is it I think strange? that is it. I think the biggest thrill for any brewer, and I, I feel this here in in New York too, in Brooklyn, when I see people ordering my beer and drinking, and I just feel like yes, you know, and then it's almost double yes when uh, you see it happening in Paris or London uh, uh, around the world. Um, It's quite amazing uh, how the name Brooklyn has carried us uh, to all these faraway places because we've never really done any advertising. It's all been word of mouth.
0: Right, so that's one of the main things. You know, when I'm when I'm doing my research, I'm wondering, like, how do they do so well with really no, virtually no advertising? How did that like word of mouth, as you say, how does that work? And how did you guys? How do you think that the way you guys approached it like that? Did so well and and I mean, it shows you know the true power of word of mouth and that you ne- don't necessarily need to pay for big advertising or marketing
1: yeah uh, you know in the beginning of Brooklyn brewery, um, I realized we had we didn't have enough money to do traditional advertising. I mean, first of all, advertising in New York City is crazy, expensive. and you never know how effective it is. Um, you know, and so it was kind of off the table. like we can't afford to, we couldn't even afford to produce a commercial, let alone air it on radio or, or TV. But I knew we were living in a place, Brooklyn, where a lot of exciting things were happening. you know there, there were so many artists, uh, in, in Bushwick and, and Williamsburg, um, where, you know, where we located, uh, in, in the very beginning. And they were all like us, you know, kind of scraping by. So we, um, we donated beer to them for their openings and, uh, for the art galleries that opened up. And, and we explained it, we told them, look, don't just give away the beer, you know, uh, Put a little sign by your 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 uh, beer source there, and and tell people you appreciate a two dollar donation for for the beer. And so, we helped uh, a lot of people raise money for their uh, projects and uh, arts projects, but then also not for profit organizations. In, in particular, we uh, focused on parks. So you know, I've been on the board of the Prospect Park Alliance for like 25 years now. And uh, I don't know, I can't even imagine how much beer we've given them over the years. Um, But that created a a lot of goodwill. It's not like an automatic thing, like you give away a lot of beer and everyone loves you. It doesn't really work that way. But, you know, eventually you do gain a lot of respect uh, by being a good, uh, you know, uh, sort of responsible business and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very gratified when I run into people all the time, really, who say to me, you know, I don't even know if you know about my little dance group, but uh, you guys have been donating beer to us for like 25 years, and we really appreciate it. Uh, and that makes me feel good. And then, of course, we kind of rode the wave of the Renaissance in in Brooklyn. So, you know all of a sudden Brooklyn had uh, a lot of international connections and there were a lot of uh, people in music and art and literature uh, connecting with Brooklyn. Uh, and, uh, you know, we uh, sort of were, were part of that whole thing. Uh, so I think that helped us uh, project uh, around the world. And then the Internet... Which didn't exist when we started, uh, I mean, it just kind of uh, blew up everything we were doing. and And the reach of what we were doing became uh, so much greater uh, than it was with without the internet. Um, there were there I, I'll give you an example. We did promotions too. I'll give you an example in I think it was like three years, like nineteen ninety to ninety two we did something called the Brooklyn Lager Band Search. So we realized there were all these bands in Brooklyn, and they were all struggling to get attention and to get uh, signed you know, with a big record company. Um, funny, record companies hardly exist <laughs> today. But... Um, so we partnered with the guy who was doing the uh, Celebrate Brooklyn series in Prospect Park, and we did something called the Brooklyn Logger Band Search. And we uh, solicited, uh, you know, entries uh, with taped auditions. So, uh, and we, gave, uh, we had three awards, one for rock, one for world beat, and one for jazz. And we you know, we got hundreds of tapes, tapes and we listened to them along with some record, record industry scouts who uh, participated as judges. And we narrowed it to like five bands in each category. And then we did those five bands presented at the Knitting Factory, the Jazz, at, at Sounds of Brazil, the World Beat, and at the Cat Club, which I don't think exists today, for The Rock. And then we picked a winner... The winner got $1,000 and got to open for a big-name band at the Prospect Park Band Shell. So the whole idea of that was, you know, you're an unknown band. We're an unknown brewery. (laughs) So we'll get together and get some attention. And actually, for the last two years of that, National Public Radio broadcast uh, those winning uh, bands' performances uh, in Prospect Park. We had to pay for the recording, but I mean, it, it was and it was a lot of money for us. But uh, you know, it was nothing compared to the exposure we got from that. So, so we did a lot of um, you know kind of guerrilla marketing. Uh, we were kind of making it up every day.
0: I want to, you know, I've I've read your book, and I want for people that that aren't that haven't yet. Um, I want then to have just a little bit of background, maybe, and hear it from yourself on, because you have a very interesting life story, and, you know, even, you know, the years before getting involved with Brooklyn Brewery, if you don't mind just giving a small background on, you know, your time as the, the Middle East correspondent for the, for the Associated Press, and then how, you know, a short, shorter version of how Brooklyn Brewery got started, if you will.
1: Yeah, so... After I gave up golf, I ended up majoring in English. And uh, right out of college, I tried teaching high school English. I almost had a nervous breakdown. It's the hardest thing I ever did in my life. I couldn't wait to get out of there. And I went to work for a newspaper in upstate New York, in Geneva, New York, little town upstate. And I loved uh, being the local reporter. And then uh, I married my uh, high school uh, girlfriend and... Eventually we moved to New York City uh, and I worked for newspapers in the suburbs uh, of New York. We lived on the Upper West Side. And uh, uh, eventually I got my big chance a uh, job with Associated Press in Newark, New Jersey. And um, actually Ellen and I split up at that time uh, and we got divorced. And, uh, mm-hmm. and I I got it in my head, I wanted to cover a war. So I started studying... Were they too related? Yeah, it was sort of a little war there. uh, Got me interested in war. So I started studying Arabic, and I said I wanted to go to Beirut. And I knew, actually I learned there aren't too many people who want to go to Beirut and cover a war, you know. So a year after volunteering uh, to go to Beirut, I landed in Beirut as the Middle East correspondent for AP. And it was 1979, an incredible five years uh, commenced uh, right then. I was sent to Iran to cover the hostage uh, story, and then I got kicked out of Iran. I went back in with the Iraqi army when they invaded Iran in 1980. um, And I was uh, sitting behind President Sadat of Egypt when he was assassinated in Cairo, and uh, I covered the uh, Israeli wars in Lebanon, the civil war in Lebanon. I was abducted in Lebanon in 1980, a very nasty incident where the people with me, two of the guys with me were tortured and killed, and one was uh, shot. Uh, and we carried him out and got on a, a helicopter, and he lived. Um, so it was like a pretty amazing uh, five and a half years in the middle of that, I missed my uh, ex-wife, Ellen, and started writing to her, and eventually she came to visit me in Beirut. And when she came to Beirut, there was no fighting. We had an amazing time, so we went up to the mountains, we went to Syria, to Damascus, and we decided to get back together. So we got remarried in Beirut during the war, and we had our first child there, and then our second child in, in uh, Cairo, uh, but when I was in the Middle East, I met Americans who worked in Saudi Arabia where they have Islamic law, no alcohol. And these guys were avid homebrewers. And it's the first time I ever learned you can make beer in your kitchen. Uh, AP wanted me to go to the Philippines next. Ellen said, no way I'm going to Manila with these babies. I'm going home. I hope you come with me. So I had a choice you know, between my family or uh, my career. And I chose my family, came back. I went to work for Newsday doing foreign news at Newsday, and I started making beer at home. And that was really the genesis of uh, the Brooklyn Brewery. I remember uh, in the
0: book, I think you'd say um, when you first make your first batch, I suppose, of of beer, and how you, you know, I think it was like 30 of the 40 bottles you you mess up. Yeah. Um, What was that feeling like the first time that you made like your first? successful brew. Do you remember that? Was was it at that moment where you're like, I need to do something with this?
1: No, not really. I mean, uh, when I started homebrewing, you know, I would share it with my neighbors and we all thought it was cool. And uh, uh, it took a while. Really, it had more to do with being bored being an editor at Newsday. I, I just, I couldn't believe you know, after the amazing experience I'd had in the Middle East, it, is this going to be the rest of my life, you know, with all these stiff guys, editors, you know, wearing a tie every day? I I, I can't do this. Uh, and that was when I started dreaming of uh, starting a brewery. Also, I learned about the history of brewing in Brooklyn, which is amazing story, you know, When Brooklyn became part of New York City in 1898, there were 45 breweries in in Brooklyn. It was a major brewing center. And the last two big breweries had closed in 1976, Schaefer and Rheingold. So I thought the idea of starting one of these what were called microbreweries back then in Brooklyn, uh, you know, would be a perfect thing for Brooklyn. And bringing brewing back to Brooklyn is something people could uh, sort of uh, embrace and And it it worked. So then when we talk
0: about the discussion between you and, at the time, your your downstairs neighbor, um, who you end up starting the brewery with, um, Mr. Tom Potter, Uh, will you talk about that discussion and then, you know, how you then put that first step forward into creating the Brooklyn Brewery?
1: Yeah, so Tom was my best uh, customer, my homebrew, you know. Uh, it uh, it was like 1986, the year the Mets won the World Series, and Tom and I seemed like every weekend we would end up watching the kids because my wife was in grad school and Tom's wife was an artist and I'm very much more involved in her work, uh, Gail, and... Um, so we would watch uh, the Mets and watch the kids and drink my homebrew, and I was trying to convince Tom we should start a brewery, and he thought I was crazy because he had studied the beer industry and knew the big guys were getting bigger and bigger and the little guys were getting driven out. Um, but I, I, you know, I said, we're not going to compete with the big guys. We're going to compete with the imports. We're, we're not drinking domestic beer anymore. We want beer with flavor. So we're going to make beer with flavor and compete with the imports. And we're going to price it right with uh, the imports. And and, uh, that's the strategy. Eventually, uh, Tom went to the uh, Micro Brewers Conference, which was held in Portland, Oregon, 1986. And, uh, you know, he went with his Brooks Brothers suit. He's a banker from New York City. And there were only about 20 microbreweries in the country then, and they're all at this conference, and they see this banker from New York, so they're all like pushing their business plans on him and, uh, uh, you know, thinking of him as a source of financing, not realizing that he, you know, was being convinced to start a brewery. Uh, So he came back to New York and said, okay, I see what you're talking about, and we got these business plans. Uh, you know, we can, we can put together our own business plan. So Tom did the numbers for the business plan and I did the uh, sort of why Brooklyn and uh, the marketing end of the thing. And uh, we started raising money. Uh, we wanted to raise a half million dollars, uh, which we eventually did.
0: You say also in the book that you had a pretty good idea that you'd be good at business we talk about where that stems from and if your if your family has a business background and why you were confident that you would be you know good at business and you, you ended up being quite right i would say
1: well i it was a conceit i would say the idea that i could be good at business uh, you know the only i mean i had never taken any business courses or anything like that when i was a kid though i was a really good at at selling things so You know, if the Boy Scouts were selling candy, I sold the most candy. (laughs) And uh, I uh, had a paper route. I I delivered a newspaper, a little newspaper in southeastern Ohio. And I actually won a contest when I was 12 years old. I was the most popular newsboy in Ohio. Wow. And I got a two-week trip to Brazil when I was 12 years old. Uh, So actually, I told that story to a lot of people, when we were raising money, and I think it actually impressed people. Uh, and I think they put that together with, oh, well, you know, he went through all this stuff in the Middle East and got through, you know, maybe he can succeed with the with the brewery. And Tom, my partner, had, was a banker, had an MBA from Columbia, so, you know, on paper, Tom looked like uh, a good uh, businessman, but really neither of us knew what we were doing. Doing? <laughs> how did
0: your time in the Middle East prepare you to, uh, if it did in any way, prepare you to run, you know, a business that's now as big as it is?
1: You know, I often compare starting a business to going off to cover a war. Uh, because, you know, when, when your boss calls you and says, how quickly can you get to Tehran or how quickly can you get to Baghdad? And you get on that airplane, you just don't know what's going to happen to you when you, when you hit the ground. Uh, but you have to deal with it, and you, you have to produce a story uh, every day. And uh, starting a business is, is kind of uh, similar. It, it, uh, it takes everything you got and a lot of things you didn't know you had. Uh, you, you learn a lot about yourself uh, because every day you run into problems that have to be solved. And uh, you either uh, solve them or, or you screw up. And uh, uh, so I think just ha- having the experience with an intense, uh, you know, uh, results-driven activity like journalism uh, does prepare you in a lot of ways for... Uh, The unexpected things you run into in in business.
0: Is there one um, story in particular from your time in in the Middle East that has stuck with you most vividly? I mean, there's. I also want to ask you about the time that you got abducted. If you want to talk about that, Um, but if there's a separate story from that that you that you think about that was like a that for some people would be like an you know mind-boggling story.
1: Well. I, I don't know, are you aware of the, uh, the uh, latest update on that story about my being abducted? I'm not. Well, that's amazing, uh, I'll, and I'll tell that story. So, this is 1980. I'm in South Lebanon with the Irish Battalion of the United Nations Peacekeeping Force on a patrol there's a peacekeeping force in South Lebanon that's put there by the UN to prevent the PLO from going into Israel. So I'm with the Irish battalion uh, on a patrol routine. We're abducted by a militia group and the lead militiaman shoots one of the Irishmen who's with us and then takes away two of the other Irishmen and they're found hours later. They've been tortured and killed. And it turned out there was a revenge killing. There had been a battle between the Irish battalion and this militia. They killed a militia man. The guy who abducted us was the brother of the kid who was killed, and he wanted revenge so, on the Irish. So they let us go, Let me and my photographer and a couple of UN officers, actually one French and one American, they let us all go, but they tortured and killed these two Irishmen. So 35 years later, I'm sitting at my office in Brooklyn at the brewery, and the woman who answers the phone comes in and says, uh, Steve, the, uh, Homeland Security agents are on the line. They want to talk to you. And I said, well, of course, You know, put them through. So these, uh, the Homeland guys uh, say, we want to talk to you. And I said, okay, of course, Why? And they said, well, we'd like to tell you when we get there. And I said, well, okay, when do you want to come? And they said, now. So they show up like a half hour later, sit down in my office, and they said, don't be alarmed. You know, this is something you were involved in 35 years ago in in Lebanon, uh, in South Lebanon with the United Nations. And I said, well, you mean when I was abducted? And they said, yeah. They said, we think the guy who abducted you is living in Detroit, running an ice cream truck, selling ice cream to children and he applied for american citizenship we investigated him we found he entered the u.s. illegally and we found your stories about the killings and uh so we're wondering if you could identify him and they showed me headshots of uh, 50 arab men and i picked him out and they said wow that's uh, that's amazing uh would you, mind, would you be willing to testify against him? And I said, yes. Uh, so then they went to Ireland, and they found the Irishman who was shot by this guy, shot point blank, um, who lived. Uh, and he identified the guy too. So eventually they arrested him and deported him to Lebanon. And he is at this very moment in a jail in Lebanon uh, and he's on trial for double murder of the two guys that attempted murder of the third guy. You know, as a journalist, you write a lot of stories, and when you're a young journalist and you don't know any better, you think, wow, this story's going to blow the lid off this town. You know, people are going to rebel when they read how screwed up this thing is or whatever. And, in fact, nothing ever happens when, from, as a result of a news story so to see this thing follow through to the point where this guy is brought to justice uh, is a very satisfying uh, thing for me. Uh, Did you
0: ever get to see him? Did you When you testified, you, were you in the same room as him?
1: No, I was subpoenaed to come to Beirut and testify. But my journalist friends in Beirut told me, do not come here because this guy has a, a big family, and uh, you, know, you would definitely be in danger uh, if you came to testify. So... I gave a deposition which was read at the trial. And it's interesting. So he was a Shiite Muslim uh, working for this militia, which was actually an Israeli supportive militia. It's complicated. Lebanon's very complicated. Um, So Hezbollah didn't exist back then. Today, Hezbollah dominates South Lebanon, and this guy's family is big in Hezbollah. So what I hear from the Irish is that the family is protecting him from being convicted and executed. And the Irish government is insisting that he be prosecuted. So they're both hoping he's going to die in captivity. And I think he's like, he's probably close to 80 years old now. Uh, But he's been in jail for uh, five years since uh, he got sent to Beirut. What
0: have you, have you been back to, to the Middle East um, often since uh, your time there as a correspondent?
1: Yeah, I've been to Beirut a number of times. So last time was in 2011. I went for a wedding uh, in this little coastal city south of Beirut called Damor, where I almost got killed by an Israeli airstrike in, in Damor once. So it was kind of bizarre being back there for a wedding. And the wedding was of a young Palestinian guy um, and uh, his uh, Shiite Muslim uh, uh, wife from South Lebanon. Her her family, uh, her her dad is like head of the Communist Party in uh, South Lebanon. The Communist Party being not really communist, but just leftist uh, kind of party. So it was sort of a bizarre moment to, to be back in a place where I almost bought it.
0: How has your your time there, you know, changed your perception of of the world? I suppose because you have a very unique outlook that you know so many people here don't have, and we have our one perception. For people who haven't been to the Middle East, we see it one way from the, the media, but you saw it, especially in a different time as well. Um, I mean, you were literally there for five and a half years, right? How is that kind of changed your perception on, on life and, and how has that kind of influenced you, um, more so deeper as a, as a person?
1: Well, I, you know, my wife and I, uh, and our kids follow, uh, international news. Uh, we, we know it, uh, we, we lived it and, Somehow when you're immersed in that uh, for a time, it just sticks with you uh, for, the, for the rest of your life. Um, so you, we travel a lot. And actually I'm thrilled that Brooklyn Brewery is selling all over the world now because I get to go to a lot of places and, and meet a lot of people. My daughter Lily is doing a PhD in Middle East history at UCLA now. Uh, So she's very much, uh, she worked for AP for a number of years, and then she lived in uh, Egypt. Uh, She had an internship at American University in Cairo, and she also lived in Syria when she was studying uh, Arabic. And now uh, she's studying Turkish and Kurdish. Uh, So the stuff happening in the news right now with the betrayal uh, by uh, President Trump of the Kurds, uh, you know she's right on top of the the story. Do you
0: think if Ellen had not said, you know we're I'm leaving, we're going back. Do you think <laughs> you'd have still been uh, a journalist
1: definitely i i was I was thrilled with the work I was doing and the idea of going to you know being tapped to go to Manila because President Marcos was ta- in trouble then. Uh, you know, it would have been the next big uh, story. So, uh, yeah, I was. I, it was a great disappointment to me when I came back to New York, uh, because you know, when you're a foreign correspondent, you're kind of an important person in in that country, and uh, to come back and just be a you know a, a, an editor uh, was a big come down. Uh, Actually that's a big interesting problem for all foreign correspondents because you when you you're never going to do anything as exciting as being a foreign correspondent. So when you come back from uh, you know from that life uh, it's a kind of a tough adjustment. Also, you know the, the post traumatic stress disorder which didn't really come into use until like the early 90s. Um, I, I'm sure I had a big dose of that. Um, um, but, um, you know, it wasn't anything that anyone thought about or anyone, uh, thought needed attention or treatment. Uh, so, uh, you know, we just drank a lot of whiskey, uh, to, to deal with our anxiety.
0: Right. I think that's a, that's an interesting point because I was thinking about that as well. It's like, most people think that PTSD is, you know, just with veterans and um, people who are, you know, on the front lines. But I imagine, you know, being a, a foreign correspondent can be just as traumatic, and sometimes, if not more, especially with some of the the instances that you're that you're talking about. How has, over the years, do you feel like you've, um, how have you dealt with that, you know? especially now that people talk about it more and are willing to talk about mental health more and, and trauma more, yeah. do you find that <clears throat> to be um, maybe beneficial for yourself as well in any way?
1: You know, uh, my daughter Lily uh, worked with Sebastian Younger, the guy who wrote uh, uh, The Perfect Storm, and he's a war correspondent for a Vanity Fair. His photographer, Tim Hetherington, got killed in Libya uh, he was wounded in a mortar attack, and he bled to death. And if someone had put a tourniquet on his leg, he would have lived. So Sebastian and Lily started this organization called RISC, Reporters Instructed in Saving Colleagues. And they raise money to train freelance war reporters in first aid and give them medical kits. Uh, so I do events where I interview war reporters and then we take the, you know, we charge people for, to come. And people are, the public is interested in, in what war reporters do. And I donate the money to, to risk. So I did one earlier this year in Sweden, which was, we had like 200, we had turn away people for that one. I did it with Swedish reporters, war reporters. And um, I, I'm trying to set one up in Paris right now with some uh, reporters I, I know in uh, Paris. And we talk a lot about PTSD and uh, how, um, you know, the better newspapers like uh, the New York Times, Washington Post, and AP are very much aware of uh, PTSD. And and they, uh, you know, uh, reporters now are trained in how to deal with that. And... and uh, editors are much more sensitive to the mental health of uh, the people working for them. Uh, so yeah I actually that one of the uh, events I did for risk was with a professor he's Canadian I think it's I think he's at University of Toronto uh, Dr. Uh, Anthony um, I'm spacing on his last name. But he's an expert in PTSD and has studied uh, the effects of of, uh, covering wars on reporters. And uh, it definitely has a huge effect because, you know, reporters have to go from one big event to another, one big story to another. And uh, it's like constant uh, intensity of uh, covering conflict. We're going to take a slightly a quick break. Our logo, a very famous designer. He did the I Love New York logo, did Bob Dylan's early albums, and uh, he's done a million things you would recognize. There are, are many books about Milton. And um, he has a—well, a, first of all, he knows New York. You know, he's born in the Bronx, brought, brought up in New York, he, started one of the early graphic design firms and he knows a lot about business because he's seen the way, you know, he was a founder of New York Magazine uh, which got bought by Rupert Murdoch and when it did, he quit and every, everyone else of with any integrity quit and uh, uh, Milton has been a great advisor for me uh, over the years in, in, uh, in terms of uh, business and as far as, you know, business and, and family, uh, I think that's it's very important to uh, not allow your business to uh, sort of swallow your life. And uh, I think that can happen. Uh, I think that having a partner like Tom uh, meant that, uh, you know... Uh, we could both take vacations every year, and we did. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I was always very much aware of uh, uh, keeping my family uh, first. Um, you know, foreign correspondents typically are not very good family people. Uh, they tend to, foreign correspondents <coughs> tend to have some very bad. Personal habits, uh, drinking, drugs, uh, and just the desire to get to every conflict that flares up uh, around around the globe. Uh, so, as a business per- person, I've I, I always tell people who are talking about going into business, I tell them to they have to understand that it could swallow up their life entirely. Uh, and that you've really got to uh, make sure you have a place for your your role as a father and, and a, a leader uh, with your wife of of a family, because uh, the business can can just uh, dominate your life, and and you shouldn't let that happen because life is more than just uh, business.
0: How have you or? Is there one piece of advice that you wish you could tell yourself back when you started the business? No, something that you know now that could have saved you time, money, stress. Um,
1: I think there are moments where you have to make big decisions, like uh, you know, you're bringing in a partner and that partner, you're, you're essentially selling a big piece of your business to that partner. Uh, those are very dangerous moments, perilous moments, and you have to really think hard about those decisions and talk to other people about them and, and get, get some advice on them. Um, because... Um, Ultimately, you know, those decisions are going to determine how much you benefit uh, from the success of the business. And every decision like that is a trade-off. You're giving up something, but obviously uh, you're getting something for it. And uh, those are very tricky decisions. And I think often I look back at some of those and think, I wish I'd done that a little bit differently. But on the other hand, things have worked out pretty well. So, you know, don't beat yourself up over it.
0: One of those trade-offs that I I enjoyed the most um, from the the book was when you talk about, um, as you mentioned, your first interaction with Milton and how you even got to get there um, (laughs) and how you uh, basically were kind of pestering his secretary for...
1: Yeah, yeah. She she blew me off the first time I called.
0: <laughs> well, I think what's what's also really you know inspiring in that sense is is that you guys you know as you talk about it's like you really didn't have the money to to start anything at first, and you definitely didn't have the money to pay for someone of that caliber to to do your logo and right. and for people who who haven't read the book yet and and, and will hopefully um, you know you you pester. Um, Milton's secretary she finally was like okay okay I'll get you to him and then once you you know put in front your your idea um, he says he's on board and then he ends up having a stake in the company I think that's like a really good you know speaking of business um, a creative way of going about it because I think for some people they might have kind of given up and said eh you know I'll go for a different designer but I think you realize the power of having that logo and in that sense, I think you were a thousand percent right because that logo now, you know, is the one you see all over the world. Yeah. Um, how did you, you know, is it, is it moments like those where you feel extra, I don't know, maybe proud or happy that, that things turned out the way they did in that specific moment? Because if that secretary had blown you off and had ended <laughs> up not giving... You, the call to to Milton, things could be very different today.
1: Yeah, I think my persistence there was uh, sort of the persistence of a journalist. You know, I was like, damn it, I'm going to meet this guy. I'm not going to let this woman uh, prevent me from at least pitching uh, Milton. Um, Yeah, uh, that... You know that's a quality that journalists have I, that I think is very much uh, you know transferable into the into the business world. And I feel like there are other instances of of where that um, sort of uh, you know you, you knock on every door attitude uh, has been a positive for us. I, I don't know if you remember, but um, our biggest investor early on, I'm from a really small town in southeastern Ohio, Middleport. It's like 3,000 people. I think it's shrunk since I left when I was 16. Um, But when when we were raising money, my dad said, why don't you send your plan to Bernard Fultz, this attorney in that little town? And, you know, I hadn't seen Bernard Fultz in like 10, 15 years at, at that point, and I said, really, Middleport? And he said, well, you never know, you know, just send it to him. So it turned out Bernard Fultz, uh, the attorney in our, my hometown, had a client who had become extremely wealthy uh, as an entrepreneur. Like this guy, when I was a kid, this guy was driving a truck delivering coal from the coal mines in West Virginia and Ohio to the power plants on the Ohio River, and eventually he bought his truck, then he bought another truck, then he owned all the trucks, then he bought a mine, then he bought another mine, and then he sold it all to the power companies. I don't know how wealthy he was, but totally out of the blue, he became our biggest investor. And uh, actually, there was a moment like 1994 when we were just about to begin construction of the brewery in, in Williamsburg when we were we were in deep trouble financially, and uh, um, we had a meeting with Bernard and and this man whose name is Jay Hall Jr. in Columbus, Ohio. We met them at a at a uh, uh, hotel near the airport in Columbus, and Jay Hall, the the money guy, was a man of few words. You know, very modest, always. Was wearing like a, a a nice shirt, but a leather jacket and jeans. Um, and Bernard was, of course, the lawyer with the suit and tie every time, and he did all the talking. So we're sitting in this little hotel room, and Bernard's going on and on about the risk and how we're growing, but we're not really very profitable, and but we're getting a lot of attention in the media, blah blah blah. And he turns to Jay and says, uh, "Jay, did you want to say anything?" And Jay says, hell, Bernard, only reason I invest in this thing is because Steve's from Middleport. Let's write a check. <laughs> and he wrote me a check for a million dollars. You know. Mm-hmm. And it was like, whoa, what a moment, you know. So that lesson there is, you know, knock on every door. You never know where the money's gonna come from. And raising money. I thought Tom would raise most of the money. I didn't think I would be uh, raising most of the money, but in fact, I I raised most of the money. And I think having the passion for the business, I I think people invest in people. Like, we had a great business plan. Like, in business school, it would have gotten an A, I'm sure. But, you know, that's like uh, table stakes. Like, you got to have a good business plan. I think what people really judge you and decide, do I want to write this guy a check with my hard-earned money? And is he going to give me a return or not?
0: What did your business plan look like, if you had to describe it back then?
1: Well, uh, so it it began with a general description of the uh, rise of imported beer and expensive beer uh, in, in the U.S., and how the... The, you know, the beer industry is going toward more expensive brands, and uh, that's a growth part of things. Um, then, uh, you know, we said our goal is to get a big piece of the market in Brooklyn. We said with the money we're raising, we showed what we were going to do with the money. We said we're going to, in, we're going to contract to produce the beer in upstate New York we're going to truck it to Brooklyn, and we're going to sell the beer ourselves uh, and own our own distribution company. And that's the way we're going to get established, and then we're going to build a brewery. And then, you know, we had uh, a section with uh, projections, like, you know, first month sales, second month, uh, first year, second year, profitable by the third year, I think, you know, which is total fiction. But, um, and then... I think the part that most impressed people was the team. So it was me, Tom. We had a a brewmaster who's a fourth-generation German-American brewer who could help us brew at this brewery upstate, and Milton Glazer. And uh, we had a lawyer, uh, Nick Scopetta, who had been head of uh, the Knapp Commission. Uh, uh, He was a, a prosecutor. And the reason we hired him is because many of our investors said, uh, a brewery in Brooklyn, you know, what about the mafia? So we hired Nick to answer, the, you know, we said, well, our, our general counsel is Nick Scopetta, a former prosecutor. Nick laughs about that because, you know, he said, I wouldn't have the faintest idea what to do if the mafia came after you. Did you
0: ever have any interactions with the mafia?
1: We did years later, yeah. When we're building uh, the brewery, it was a, a very scary uh, ordeal. Uh,
0: Can you go into that or no?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so when we're, we're building our brewery in like 1996, and we're we're almost done with it in, in Williamsburg, and the Daily News wrote a story about the first brewery in Brooklyn in 20 years, and they had photos. Of the construction picture of me and our brewmaster Garrett Oliver on the construction site. So the next day, two big limousines pull up in front of the brewery, and uh, these guys got out who looked like they're central casting. Uh, the minute they showed up, all the workers disappeared off the job site. You know, electricians, carpenters, plumbers—they they were gone. And it turned out we were doing uh, this job with non-union labor. And these guys were represented the labor unions, so they shut us down uh, for like ten days. And eventually, I had a meeting with the boss of the group and a couple of other guys, and uh, I tried to evoke some human connection with them, talking about my background, the w- war stories, etc. And the boss is kind of interested in my background. Uh, but the guys with him were like, you know, yeah, 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 we heard enough of this. You know, we're here for J-O-B-S. You did this without us, you know. And and uh, so eventually the boss uh, told me he was going to have to hurt me. Uh, and uh, he put his hand between my legs. I was sitting in a chair very much like this, leaning back in an office chair. And he put his face down next to me and said, we're going to have to hurt you. And then he grabbed me by the shoulders and slammed me into the wall and said, just kidding, we want you to come to our Christmas party and bring your wife and take an ad in our journal. And I'm thinking, God, I'll take a gold page and whatever. And they left, and eventually the workers came back on the job, and I never heard from those guys again. Um, but I wrote about this in Beer School, the the book you're talking about. And... Um, when the book came out, New York Magazine interviewed me. They wanted to know the name of the boss. And I said, You've got to be kidding me. I live in South Brooklyn. You know, he's probably in my neighborhood. So I wouldn't give them the name. But I Googled him. This is like 2005. He went to jail for extortion and racketeering for putting no show jobs on a school construction project at 39th Street and 3rd Avenue, about 30 blocks from where we live.
0: How long did he go to jail for?
1: He went to jail for like five years.
0: What do you? I mean, now uh, Brooklyn Brewery is all over the world. Yeah. What's next for it? I mean, there's. It's already. You know. I mean, we were talking even before places like Japan and and Sweden and Australia, and there it goes on and on and on. Yeah. How do you, you know, from this point on, even continue to push the the brand even more?
1: Well, um, you know the craft. Craft beer business in the U.S. is really tough right now because there are 7,600 breweries. You know, when I started, there were fewer than 50 breweries in the whole country, 50 brewing companies in the whole country. Now there are 7,600. So there's a real glut, and it's a real tough sell domestically. But our international business is exploding like this year, it's a very big number to begin with, and it'll grow by like 15 16% this year. So I think that's going to continue to grow. Um, and we've only begun to understand how to uh, really, you know, elevate that market with marketing around the world. And that's what we're beginning to do now. Uh, Up to now, most of our effort has been selling beer, like pushing beer, getting restaurants and bars to understand our beer and to uh, sell it for us. Now, we're beginning to think more about marketing the beer, which means, you know, telling our story, telling the story of our brands through the media, through the internet in a much more professional way. And so, you know, I, I mean, we are 31 years old, but I feel like we're at the beginning of uh, the growth of uh, of Brooklyn Brewery. And and the export business is now, this year it'll be 60% of our sales will be uh, export.
0: What do you, What would you say is the is the favorite part of what you do now today on a regular basis?
1: Well, I'm no longer doing like day-to-day uh, stuff. You know, we have a CEO and a president and I'm chairman. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, an ambassador now. And our brewmaster, Garrett Oliver, also. Uh, Garrett's known all over the world. He's written a couple of... Um, uh, he wrote a book called The Brewmaster's Table, all about beer and food and he's editor in chief of the Oxford Companion to Beer, which is the first ever encyclopedia of beer published by Oxford University Press. So Garrett and I basically are, are ambassadors now. We travel around telling the story of the brewery, tasting our our beers with people. In the past six months, I've been to uh, I've been to Sweden, I've been to Japan, I've been to Australia, I've been to China, I've been to Russia, uh, selling beer. And it's kind of fun, you know, because my books have been translated into Russian and Chinese and Japanese, so I always run into people who want me to sign their books, and uh, of course I get a kick out of that. You know, I feel like I'm selling beer and books these days, and I'm writing an update of Beer School for a Japanese publisher uh, right now, so... I think you've only begun to see uh, Brooklyn Brewery blossom uh, around the world.
0: What do you, and to wrap things up, what do you hope is your legacy as co founder, president, chairman of the Brooklyn Brewery?
1: Well, I I hope the brand uh, has a future, and I think it's pretty much assured. I mean, 31 years is not nothing, Um, and I would be thrilled. If you know Brooklyn uh, Lager and and, uh, the Brooklyn brand is uh, still around uh, long after I'm gone,
0: (laughs) you can find um, more information about the Brooklyn Brewery and all of their history, tours, events, their online store, and much, much more at BrooklynBrewery.com. You can find Steve's Books, Beer School. Bottling Success at the Brooklyn Brewery and The Craft Beer Revolution, How a Band of Micro Brewers is Transforming the World's Favorite Drink, those you can find virtually anywhere. The audiobook versions as well, those are the ones I listened to. Um, Steve, um, it was a pleasure to have you on. We uh, People that don't know, we're, we're neighbors. <laughs> That's right. And um, and a great neighbor, and uh, making, making Brooklynites around the world proud to be from Brooklyn, so thank you for taking the time and it's a great honor to have you on.
1: Thank you, Felix. Good luck to you.